Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike and Davina, and thank you so much for being here. Man, it has been a long time since I've released a new podcast episode. And uh, right off the bat, I just want to say how good it feels to be back here and making more episodes. And uh, I also want to just ap- apologize for taking so long to get back with another episode. Admittedly, I wasn't planning on taking a break, but then I started working on a brand new coaching program, which is where I work one-on-one with my students and I help them through write a project, whether that's working on a song or mixing an album. And the focus is on giving you regular feedback, ongoing mix reviews, doing one-on-one calls to work through your process and get clear on your workflow and so much more. It's really about helping you become completely independent with your music productions and feeling confident at every stage of the process. So if you're interested in learning more about that and you want to sign up, visit masteryourmix.com forward slash coaching and you and I can hop on a call and we can talk about it a little further. Now, space is really limited for this because of the time involved and the the ongoing support that I offer my students. I'm only accepting five people at a time, but right now, as we speak, I've got a few spots open. So if you're interested in signing up, definitely make sure to hit me up. Again, that's masteryourmix.com forward slash coaching. So with that said, now that I've got this coaching program done and I've started to see some amazing results with my students that are inside of it, I actually have a little bit more bandwidth in me now to put some more energy into building the podcast up again and getting more episodes going. So with that said, my guest today is Julian Emery. He is a composer, a producer. He used to be a session guitar player. He's had quite an amazing career and he's worked with artists such as Nothing But Thieves, Lissy, Simple Plan, Gavin DeGraw, the guy has written for many, many big acts and continues to put out hit after hit. And in this conversation, we get really deep into the world of songwriting. And I think you're going to find this really interesting. He gives us a lot of really great perspective on getting into the industry, finding your strengths and finding the patterns that allow you to showcase your talents in the best way possible. So I think you're going to love this interview. Let's just jump right into it. All right, Julian Emery, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How are you doing? No problem. Yeah, very good. Thanks. Very good. That's great. For people who might not be familiar with who you are, can you give us a little bit of your background on kind of who you are, what you do, how you got into the production and the whole world of music here? Yeah, sure. So I am a guitarist by trade. My uh, my dad was a, mu- a classical musician uh, and my mum's sister in the arts as well. So I, I grew up in that kind of household. Started playing guitar when I was about 15. I got madly into, into Rush and ACDC when I was 11 and just, you know, bit, uh, had found my genre and fat, fat, found that I love rock, love the excitement of rock. And I liked, uh, you know, great drums and vibey bass and the, and, and uh, distorted guitar sound. So yeah, I, I, I started playing guitar and then I think like a lot of guitarists just got into cover bands, uh, blues brothers cover band and a, a this and a that um, type of genre, you know, lots of different types of genres and gigged around for a few years. So that was my early, my early learning, but also I was lucky enough to have, um, uh, a small studio in the house. My dad had a, uh, I don't know if you remember the, the old Ampex 
um, eight tracks uh, with a DB, uh, DBX uh, noise reduction system and and a few mics and, and my dad had you know timpani hanging around and lots of percussion instruments, vibraphones and marimbas and stuff. So I was really privileged to grow up with that around me. And then I, I kind of cut my teeth in the studio with my dad's setup, which I think he, you know, used a bit himself. And then I think the plan was for me to get to, you know, just to leave it there for me to, to, um, to use. So that I'm very thankful for that. That's amazing. So, so it was your dad that got you really into music then as far as the recording did w- were you learning from him how to get started with that no i well my my mum my dad really got me into the music i guess he was he was like tune percussion player and we i had a lot of contemporary composers playing in the house uh not actually but uh, i mean their music playing now stockhausen boulos messian and then um you know, my mum was into the shows. We had West Side Story playing and we had Buddy Rich and we had Chicago. Uh, we had a bit of pop music, but not much as Chicago. That was pretty much it and a bit of ABBA. I kind of started doing my own thing, which is away from my dad's style of music. So I just puttered around on my own. And, you know, I was recording drums first. I think I did that and then started getting into guitar recording but I was really making it up as I as I went along so I'm one of those guys I didn't have a formal engineering education I just played it by ear I think you know some of the best engineers start off that way right because I think there's something to be said for when you're in when you're in that kind of stage of like naivety almost like you haven't been taught any rules to follow or anything like that sometimes sometimes you kind of learn the best by a trial and error you know yeah i think so i think that's applicable to learning an instrument as well isn't it it's it's often best when you make it up yourself and you're not taught classically as in given a route to follow but with engineering i'm yeah i mean that was just that was my reality but i you know from working in the states a lot i i i found this much more of a culture of engineering there are the the older guys are passing it down to the younger guys i think in the uk i'm really making a sweeping statement here and there of course there are exceptions to the rule but um there are a lot of guys that i kind of make it up as they go along a bit and uh maybe i'm saying that because i i I didn't you know because i was on the musician side of things i didn't go and become an assistant at one of the studios you know i didn't watch great producers do what they do so yeah, I, I I kind of had to make it up, and I'm st- <laughs> and I'm still figuring it out. Actually, you know, thirty years later, but um, you know, maybe it is it's the best way to do it for me. I don't know. Yeah, for sure. I th- I think there's there's definitely something to be said for for just kind of learning on your own, and I guess it's also the people who get the best results out of that are the ones who obviously push themselves and who you know really want it badly enough that they 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 do push themselves to learn and make mistakes and keep going when they make mistake when they make those mistakes. And, you know, I think that, uh, you have to have a, a certain persistence to, to make this work if you're going to do it on your own. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. It's I'd sometimes see in studios, the assistant kind of sitting around staring into space. And I think, man, you, there's so much you could be asking everyone in this room or you could be doing things. I mean, I know it's quite arduous in the studio sometimes, isn't it? And there's, it's long hours and it's easy to get a bit lethargic with it all. But um, yeah, you're right. If you really got a thirst for knowledge, then 
then it's it's really useful and i i always you know i say to people these days if i could go in and watch matt lang or you know re- a really well respected um producer and studio work with the knowledge i have now that i've acquired on my own i i'd be able to put that the the my new knowledge now i'd, I'd learn at a really fast rate because you know I, i've learned a lot of the principles, but I'd love to see, you know, those really great, fantastic guys at work. Oh, well, I have actually, I've been in the studio there and it's a, it's brilliant to what, watch those guys that are dedicated engineers, you know, that have 30 plus years experience, which is absolutely brilliant. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that. So, so you were kind of just learning on your own. What was that transition like from being the musician kind of doing the whole, the, self-produced stuff kind of learning it as you're going what was that transition like to start doing it on a professional level i had the good fortune to have a best friend called a guy called james nisbet who's belinda carlisle's um long-term guitar player to have my best friend be a guitar player so we were competitive and jealous whenever the other one got a little you know a little break into something so I had so kind of someone to spar with and someone to egg me on, which was brilliant. So we were both doing similar kind of gigs together. Um, he went to Bearsville Studios for a few years, and then he came back and he got the Belinda Carl gig. This was a long time ago. And I, I had a little light bulb moment, which was, uh, you know, I was still playing with cover bands. But because he got the gig, I thought, well, okay, I I know Jim's playing well and I think I could do the same and it spurred me on to to find something for myself and actually he gave me some depth you know I did a few tv appearances with my on on guitar I think for Belinda was it Belinda yeah and then I managed to land myself my first pop gig which was with a band called Atomic Kitten who who were quite big in the UK at the time I attribute that to my pal Jim and to Tony Robbins. Um, are you familiar with Tony Robbins, Mike? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, I wasn't sure if you're talking about the, the, like that the Tony, Tony Robbins. Ro- yeah, you know, <laughs> I just, I just, I'm a big Tony Robbins fan. I just utilise his practices, and you know, I, I think because I, I saw a friend that could, was playing in arenas. You know, the, I think his first gig was a Tina Turner support. And I thought, okay, well, I've got a vision now. I I can kind of smell it. And, you know, you get psyched up and there's something in your unconscious, I think, you know, speaks, whispers to you. And, you know, I I could just feel that excitement knowing that that was a reality for myself. So I kind of willed it. I willed my first gig. I did, you know, I did gigs around London. I just, whatever gig I did, I would do it to the nth degree you know if if someone asked me to to you know learn five songs for the set i'd learn the five and another five just in case and i'd learn them inside out and back to front and i think people saw my enthusiasm and tenacity and thought okay well he's going to be a good asset for us and he's going to be reliable and he can play a bit so um let's hire him and they did that's amazing. So yeah, so you so you basically jumped into being a session guitar player, which is that that's incredible, and that that's a that's a hard gig for a lot of people to break into. So I mean, kudos to you for for getting in there. That that's amazing. What do you think it is that like? So I think you're actually the first person that I've had on this podcast who did that route first of being a session musician. So I'm curious to know like, what do you think it is 
what do you think it takes to become a success, a successful studio musician or, you know, working in a, a band touring live? What's, uh, you know, what do you think it takes to, to keep a good spot on, on, a, on a good tour there? Okay. To break into a tour, to the session guitar playing scene, do you mean? Yeah. Yeah. And to, to get into like touring and being a, a session guitar player, uh, you know, what, what do you think it takes to, to be someone who's successful in that industry? Cause there's, there's a million guitar players that are, that are super talented. So, you know, why, why, why should they keep you? Well, yeah, that's a good question. I think I can only talk about my experience. Of course, I think I benefited because I had a producer's ear, meaning that when I was on stage with the cover band, if the balance wasn't right on stage, I used to feel really uncomfortable. I wouldn't want my guitars the loudest thing. I'd want it kind of, I, I'd want to hear my guitars, I'd hear it on a record. Uh, and I, I had a sensibility for the overall sound, for the overall picture, which is a good attribute to have, I think, because you're not just focused on what you're doing. You're serving the artist then, and you're trying to play sensitively to music you've been given so i think having a producer's ear i see it in some musicians don't have it and they're just wrapped up in their own world and they're not concerned with the balance of the band especially or the groove or the feel or you know that the singer's struggling over you know they're playing too loudly and the sing sing the vocals not cutting across so i think it's good to hone that part of your armory and also it's not getting drunk and embarrassing yourself, just getting on with people and showing that you're not too argumentative or, or not too much of a liability. I, I really think, you know, because you spend so much time with people on tour, you want the other, the people you're with to feel company in your, uh, to feel comfortable in your company. So that helps if you're, if you're, I mean, actually, I used to feel uncomfortable a lot of the time, but um, when I was a bit younger, but um, I could, you know, I could got on with people and um, I, I could hang out. So I think those, and obviously it goes without saying, you need to be able to play well. And when I say play well, it's not especially knowing all the modes and being able to whiz around the fretboard. It's... Um, it's to to be able to groove to, to have a good sound you know the sound you generate so important um i know that sounds obvious but it's not always obvious yeah musicians love to kind of just serve themselves sometimes right so it kind of like goes back to what you said about you should actually be serving the song serving the artist serving the performance rather than you know just showing off your skills or whatever it is you know like there's there's definitely yeah, I think that, that that definitely ties in really well to the production side of it because it makes sense that if you were approaching being a session guitar player that way, then it makes sense that as a producer, you've got this vision of what the song is supposed to look like, what it's supposed to sound like, what, you know, how, what the tones are supposed to feel like and all that kind of stuff. So it, it really kind of makes sense that you, that you went that route, you know, like you already had that vision. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I was always most comfortable in the studio. I think, you know, I I was interested in that. I should say, actually, before I did this, I've missed a little bit of a chunk out. When I when I was between 19 and 22, I'd done, I found a company that kind of did cover recordings and we did some of the shows um, 
some of the big shows and uh, all kinds of stuff. And they kind of hire, I worked for this company for quite a few years and it was just brilliant to cut my teeth in the studio on that. And I it also just gave me an appreciation for what we've just been talking about. Yeah. To play appropriately for something and to have a broader view of the song, <clears throat> not just the guitar parts. I mean, I, I'm still guilty of that. It makes me laugh when you sit with a band in the studio and you're listening back to something you've been recording you've just recorded and i know the bass players listening to the bass the singers listening to the vocals the drums listening to the drums the guitars <laughs> listening to, to the guitar uh, and the bass player could be playing in the in completely the wrong key but the guitarist won't hear it because he's just focused on <laughs> his parts but yeah i think um but i think i think i have that sensibility anyway so yeah it's just uh, you know having having an appreciation for for the whole thing yeah, for, for for the whole whole sound of the song. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense, and and yeah, I love that that uh, visual of like the band listening to their own element, their own instrument, because it it is totally what happens, you know. And I think that's uh, I mean, per, just personally, like that was one of the biggest lessons I learned as a musician working with other producers was like li- learning to listen to other people in the band, because once you do that, your songs become so much better. You know, you, you become a better musician. You you know how to work with the other people in your band a lot better. You know, I, I just think it, it's such an important thing to to really pay attention to what else is going on in the mix other than your own part. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. For sure. <laughs> awesome. So 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 you were doing like the, the session musician stuff. You were doing you were on tour. Where did the songwriting side of it come for you? You know, like most of us, I've, I've been writing stuff since I was 15 and I just kept that side of me going and I was plagiarizing a lot like you do when you start out um but I I I so I I start after you know I was playing with Atomic Kit and I was playing with quite a few different um pop artists and um with the the first kind of manifestations of the X Factor pop idol it was called you know, those shows I was doing house band stuff. So I was getting to meet different artists. Started badgering A&R guys and I could tell I was annoying them, but I just wanted a, an opportunity to do a B-side on something. And actually I got, I was um, playing with a girl called over here called Kim Marsh and she needed a couple of B-sides or something. And I managed to get into Metropolis Studios and get her to sing a, a song that I'd written. And um, Paul Adam, uh, an A&R guy, who, who was he with at the time, Island Records, I think, finally let me, d- you know, d- do the B-side. And uh, I put everything I had into it. I just made sure it was as good as possible. I had the best musicians on it. Again, I, over this time, I'm still listening to Tony Robbins, man. I'm still trying to push, push, push. <laughs> um, I think I probably put people's noses out of joint, and I think that's okay. You know, I was I, I wasn't a bad man. I was just ambitious, to quote Jeff Beck there. Yeah, I I just kind of wit I I just willed I willed myself into it, and as the fate would have it, or um, you know the the universe was moving around in my favor at the time or at least that's how it felt i had another friend of mine i'm I'm very privileged to have a friend um and some friends actually that were in a band called a it's a guy's name was jason perry and his his brother was on drums adam and i'd met them 
in my teens through a mutual friend who was a huge Rush fan. We've all been huge Rush fans since we were 11. And I'm sure being Canadian, you understand the... Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've had I've had multiple engineers that have worked with Rush on this podcast. It's It seems to be like, you know, that's, that's the band that for a lot of people gets people going. <laughs> yeah, you either never heard of them or you die for them. You know, you just, you've got these obsessive fans and of which I am and Jason is and Adam is. They'd been in in quite a successful band a in the uk around europe and their band was kind of coming to an end and they were looking to write with some you know some pop rock acts and we just coalesced just at the same time as a band called busted who were a really big band here they were they were huge at the time they just sold out 12 Wembley arenas and um, then the, one of the guys decided he wanted to leave the band right at the pinnacle of their success. Uh, but fortunately for for us, Jet, well, actually Jason bagged the gig and then recruited me to help out to co-produce with him and to co-write with um, one of the members, a guy called Matt Willis. So that was then my break from doing this side I was badgering Paul Adam Paul Adam was also involved with this band busted so just all the stars aligned and I managed to will myself into that gig as well and had it not been for Jason and Adam it it wouldn't have happened for me and they got me in there they were considered cool by Matt Willis I don't think he thought I was very cool at all but Jason and Adam managed to blag me into the gig and then that really started me off. And there's an important lesson there, which is what certainly for me, which is to have a broad, as broad a circle of friends as possible. And that doesn't mean people in the music industry. It just means that, you know, if I, I can cite two guys in my life that have made such a dramatic change for me, one of this, um, uh, and they're both neither are in uh, in music, but they just we just they just had mutual friends that are in music, and they hooked us up. You know, quite oftentimes people just say, "Oh, I know another musician. You should meet and have a chat." Um, and if it hadn't been for those two guys, I, I would I would have taken a completely different path. I think so. That was just fantastic, and I managed to get into a band. One of you know the one of the biggest pop rock bands, kind of tailor-made for the kind of music i liked and um and landed the gig that's amazing i love that and i, I love like <laughs> there's a lot to unpack out of this story so far and you know i think uh definitely the tony robbins thing i'm starting to see it a lot more you know it's like that that uh that power of persistence and like you know just the, that determination and and unleashing the power within or whatever you know <laughs> like it's uh it definitely seems to be coming up quite a bit in your story just in, as far as you know, just pushing yourself to to move forward and and to, um, you know, I love the networking side of it too. I, I totally agree with that. I think having a big network is super important because, you know, the more people you know, the more chances you can kind of create for yourself. Sometimes, right? exactly, yeah. And I, I mean, I know the um, states and Canada are a bit bigger places than the UK, but still, um, it's it just makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah just by uh by dint of the numbers um good good to know as many people as possible to get the word around absolutely 
so you, so you had your break there and then that led to you working with tons of amazing artists and um you know you have when i look at your catalog you have a wide range of artists that you've written and produced music for you know everyone from lissy simple plan nothing but thieves uh you know like what do you think it is about you that makes you so successful in working in different styles of music that's a good question i think when you okay w when you get signed to a publisher firstly the publisher you know has you writing with lots of different people they just throw uh mud at the wall and see what sticks and so you get to meet lots of people in different areas and then over time you figure out what kind of things you're best at so i i think you know actually i've just done a kind of a yacht rocky type of thing recently and realized that Chicago had a big, you know, because my mum and dad were playing it. And I love those horn sections. I love the way Chicago sounds. I'm talking about Chicago before they went in, you know, to their 80s, the more of their 80s sound. The 70s Chicago is incredible. So, and also the cover bands I was doing, I was in a band, band called Utter Madness. It used to do Madness songs, which was Scar. And then you do your Blues Brothers and, you know, gets you into to appreciate soul and, and blues so um yeah i think you and as you get older you realize you know i mean i'm i've got rock written down you know in my in my core you know maiden acdc rush a sax and all that all that good stuff but uh the older you get you the more kind of styles you you try out and also i think which has been quite interesting for me there are similarities in in rock music, for instance. There is as quite a lot of dramatic chord changes, and I find that I can move to another genre. If that other genre has dramatic chord changes, then it instantly appeals to me. So there's lots of there's lots of crossover. It doesn't have to be um, the same genre, but if there's often. In fact, get this, there were two writers, pretty much two music writers on this Matt Willis album I did, myself and, and Dan Carter, and I wrote five songs, he wrote, he did music for five songs, and we went through all our songs, and all our songs, my songs, are pretty much the same chords, and all his songs are the same chord <laughs> sequence. I mean, there was slight variation, once you know, some relative minors going on and whatnot, but pretty much we're all, we're both sticking to the same kind of patterns so if you find that pattern in a different genre of music then bang you've you're, you're into it um and that that was a quite a rev revelation for me i love that that that's an amazing way to look at it because you know i think there are some people who just view themselves as you know they pigeonhole themselves in one genre and that's all they know there's like no there's no straying outside of that you know that's that's just all they do but i love that i love that you're able to find that those patterns that allow you to cross into those different genres. And I imagine that that has to be fairly rewarding because, you know, you it kind of keeps things fresh for you. You're not doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah, exactly. When you're doing over, th I mean, I'm into my, you know, three, over three decades, you want some variety and, um, you know, I, and also, you know, I, I'm a big fan of dr drummers and dr drums. You know, I, was, I used to listen to all those Fusion guys, Dave Weckl and Vinnie Colliute and Steve Gadd, as, along with Neil Purton, or Piet, I should say. Um, so anything that celebrates drums, you know, which Rush does, which obviously Buddy Rich does, big band, 
stuff does everything anything with great rhythms regardless of genre i'm just just instantly gets my attention i'm sure you have the same the, the same kind of thing uh you know if, if even if it's not drums you 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 know rock feels like a celebration of instruments you know it's a def- certainly a celebration of guitar and i think it's a celebration of drums as well they get to be flamboyant in rock so yeah yeah it, what, whatever the genre i'm into it you know, it's, it's interesting because I, I do feel like music evolves so frequently. And, you know, you, you just said that you, you find patterns in music and that allows you to have that crossover. You know, how, as, a, as a writer, especially someone who is working in multiple genres, how do you keep on top of that changing musical landscape so that you're kind of continuously working at a modern, high caliber level? There's a writing camp I went on one time, and I've been on a lot of writing camps. And all you, I don't know if you're familiar with these, or you're <clears throat> when you're signed to a publisher, I was signed to Warner Chapel for eight years, and then BMG, and now with Peer. But they organize, um, you know, a long weekend or a week with other writers, and you go and meet other writers and you write together. And um, on this particular writing writing week it was in a castle in france and you had uh, there were three brits there um 20 americans and a few other europeans and we set six rooms up uh and they each had a producer in i was kind of the rock guy and there was an r&b room and there was a country room um and you'd have to write a song with some of the, you know, the great writers in the world, the wealth of talent that was at that place, just off the chart. And uh, yeah, you each day you get to write with a different two other people. So three or four people in the room each day, and then you finish your song. And then I had a mobile Pro Tools rig with me. You have to then finish the song and play it to everyone that night at dinner in the dinner hall in in the castle. So there's a lot of pressure to put on yourself. And also you're you know, you're working with people outside your 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 safe genre. So, you know, I'd have a couple of R and B singers come in the room and um it's quite easy to panic in those moments. You feel I felt like a bit of a fraud, but all that needs to happen is that you are picked up a guitar and you play something from the heart and then everyone's on board because they feel it too. You know, if you're feeling the emotion there and it doesn't really matter, then you realize that actually it doesn't, the genre is not so important. You can just bring what you find emotional and find inspiring to another musician or singer and they will respond emotionally in kind and that's a great that was really liberating and everyone pretty much got on with everyone um everyone was at at a certain level but um I, i you know everyone hit it off and found common ground and we just had a absolute blast for a week it was so much fun and we got some cuts out of it too um but yeah though there are there are patterns and there are aspects of music that if they resonate to you they're going to resonate with the likelihood is they're going to resonate with most other musicians because no musician or i don't 
meet musicians that are blinkered. Musicians usually open-minded people, right? Yeah. <laughs> I love that. That That's amazing, though. Like, it, it's so true that, you know, at the end of the day, it kind of doesn't really matter what the song sounds like, how how small it may sound or how big the production may be at the end of the day, if it touches you, if you feel that, that energy or that emotion out of the, the vocals and the music, then, then that's what's going to ultimately make it feel like a good song. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And there's so much, there's such a Venn diagram of what constitutes a, a great little excerpt of music. You know, I mean, I could just pick up the guitar now and we could have a room full of people um, or, or someone could pick up a guitar and just play something that they love and, you know, everyone else is going to respond to that. No one's going to go, I'm, you know, that's just left me a bit cold. Um, and that's that. That's great. It means that you can, you know, you have a a good chance of... of um, uh, of um connecting with other other musicians yeah i love that that's that's great so since you write for so many different artists and i'm assuming that when you go to these songwriting camps you're generally kind of are you instructed as to like who the artist may be that you're writing for is that is that a common thing um it is yeah but generally what i do now the way i've so i've i I've, I've kind of carved out a little niche for myself. When I started out, I was writing with lots and lots of people and you'd have a lot of good experiences, but not all the songs were getting cut and it just wasn't commercially viable to do that. And in recent times, I've just figured out the way I like to work, which is doing a body of work maybe over five or 10 years with a band or an act and just concentrating on those guys and stockpiling ideas for, for, for the, for just a few acts. Um, and, and that's the way it seems to work best. I do stockpile, you know, I'll, I'll always use a voice recorder on my phone, just get all my ideas down when I'm having them and then, you know, bring them into a writing room. And usually then we have a starting point or, or sometimes not, you know, something, start something fresh. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so how do you get in a headspace to write for those specific artists? Like, are you trying to kind of write as if you are them or are you kind of just writing your own songs and hoping that that resonates with their feelings as well? Yeah. Uh, so usually I'll listen to what they've done and I'll usually from a production point of view, cause I want to get the sounds right and and try and figure out their musical sensibilities but i don't get too hung up on that and what i find is that i think i'm right in saying we all have our rituals when we write you go to any any band or artist and they will usually like i was talking earlier that all my chord sequences are the same there are pat there are patterns uh with any any writer that certainly over the course of a few years they'll have got that, that they'll have honed and all it takes sometimes is someone coming in and changing the starting point of a song. You know, maybe the, the, the main songwriter in a band always starts with acoustic and he's, his fingers are landed somewhere, somewhere around A minor or an F. Or they'll, you know, they're the kind of player that does something very percussive. Or they'll, it's, it's a keyboard player that will resort to something slow and emotional. All it takes sometimes is just for someone else to come in 
and start with their starting point, their their little ritual, for then the band to adopt that and then run with it in their own way. And then all of a sudden you've got something that they wouldn't normally default to. Do you see what I mean? And that sometimes that's all you need to do, I think. And, and then you're off to the races um, and it doesn't always work, but usually, you know, the bands that I've done well with, we're into the, usually I need, I need someone that's into the kind of a bit of drama or emotional chords you know the similar kind of sensibilities there there are there <coughs> conversely there are sessions that haven't worked out where i've realized after an hour when i'm trying to go to one chord and someone else is going to another or i'm trying to vouch go for one melody and the the artist keeps changing it i'm thinking it doesn't matter how long we go at this we're just not gonna find common <laughs> ground because we work differently emotionally We'll always have common ground. I'm contradicting myself now. But we'll always have some kind of com- common ground. But usually if, if someone doesn't go to the kind of chord shapes and melodies that I like, then I know we're not probably not going to get something really, really good. Yeah. So in, in cases like that, because I think that that's a very common thing, right? Like, you know, people, even in their bands, you know, you're all jamming together and there's always there's always someone who has an idea and maybe they're riffing on a, a specific thing and they're in their zone thinking like, this is the way this has to be. And there's someone else who's thinking, oh, it has to be this way. And like how when you're in that kind of situation, how do you get out of those? You know, like, you know, how do you ultimately turn those into either a good song or, or, or did you just abandon it and kind of you know, accept that, you know, maybe, maybe this isn't working or maybe these are two different songs. What, what, what does that process normally look like for you? Well, usually I'll go to sleep. I'll, I'll just take myself out of the, out of the, um, uh, out of the situation and let other people get on with it now and just not get in the way because you don't need to, you know, when you're in a room is usually th- three, or four people. I tend to prefer to work with three people in a room. Two people in a room gets, you know what it's like being in a room with two people. It's much <laughs> more intimate, isn't it? And if you of course. feel the need maybe to keep the conversation going, especially if you don't know someone that well, when there's three people, person A can talk to a person B, then person B can talk to C, and then C can talk to A, and then B can go to the toilet or A can make a cup of tea. And then there's, it's just a different dynamic. And you've got three or four people in a room. I find it makes for a more comfortable writing room and comfortable people write good ideas or channel good ideas. I love that. that that's so true. And, I, and, you know, I love that you seem to really have, and obviously like you've got lots of experience doing this, but you seem to have a very clear vision of what your strengths are. You found your your patterns in your own writing to identify your songwriting strengths. And you've also found the patterns in your work environment that you appreciate that allow you to be creative. That it, it's it's quite amazing. Oh thank you. Yeah. I well I I think I've got it right for myself now. Yeah. And it you need to enjoy the day, don't you? That sounds obvious as well, but it's not always right. I actually I figured out that when I was writing too much, I actually thought to myself, I don't enjoy writing very much with other people. Actually, what I enjoy now and the way I've configured my studio and my lo- and my, my my working life is that I spend 80% of my time on my own. Now, I'm not isolated. I talk to people and I love 
socializing on the phone or you know through not not through Skype you're using Zoom and um but I, I I enjoy only a limited time with other people and then I like to go back to my workstation and just you know have a sleep watch a video watch some YouTube tinker around on the guitar a bit do some mixing and some production and have my own agenda um which you can't do when you're with other people can you because you you have to kind of... <laughs> there's the pressure right <laughs> well you can't yeah i can't really start um cracking open netflix and watching a film when other people are trying <laughs> to write a song so um so yeah i think after after time most people yeah we all find our uh, uh, the favorite way to spend our day. Absolutely. That, I love that. That's great. So what about what about writer's block? Because that's obviously something that every songwriter gets at some point. How how do you, how have you learned to deal with that? Well, I, I'll bring in my second guru, which is Eckhart Tolle, uh, and I pr- practice acceptance with that. Yeah, it's a, a little spiritual thing, I guess. Some people would call it you just um, learn to embrace the discomfort. Now, I think with because I've been as I spend most of my time writing, I, I've become a bit of a machine. My unconscious knows to throw me up as many ideas as possible, so I don't usually have dry periods. And I know that all I have to do is go for a run, keep myself fit, and and my body will channel some ideas for me. So it's okay. Um, I'll always manage to come up with something. Tony Robbins has this, you know, idea um, that you should write for the bin sometimes. So write something that you know you're going to throw away, and and in doing that, takes the pressure off you, and just gets the cogs going uh, without putting pressure on yourself. So th- that's how I keep things going, and I, I'm, I'm never short of an idea or two. Whether they're any good or not is another question, of course. But um, I, I find in a in a writing room now that can be i think that's probably what puts a lot of people off writing is the discomfort being with a stranger and feeling embarrassed that you're not you don't have any chemistry or you're not coming up with an idea that's very good and there's lots of nuance to that you know often people will just say that they like an idea because they don't want you to feel bad and you don't want to make them feel bad so you both run with something you're not really into and then you know, you can start to panic, and after hour three, you still not got something. But um, I, lo- I, I, I now enjoy. I embrace the discomfort. So I think to myself, I'm now for the next half an hour, I'm going to feel really uncomfortable. I'm not going to try and change it. And then usually, in doing that, once you accept that's the way it is, the feeling disperses, and you you've moved through it. That's great. I love that too. And I also, you know, the idea of, like you said, throw, writing stuff for the bin, you know, something you think you're going to just throw away, it it totally relieves that pressure from yourself so that you're willing to just try something different, willing to accept it if it sucks, you know, but, but I'm sure there's, there's a lot of gold that comes from those songs as well, right? Yeah, definitely. And, and often it's a process of illumination in a writing room, I find you need to go down a number of avenues just to discount them, to think, okay, well, that wasn't right and that wasn't right. This isn't right. This is nearly right. That's definitely not right. And then finally 
you think, oh, okay, well, this actually here's here's is the right way to go. So it's a good practice that, yeah, I think to to learn to be uncomfortable, learn to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. For sure. And I feel like as a producer, what you just said there of trying all of the options to see what feels right, what what doesn't, you know, that that's also a really, really important thing, too, because, you know, musicians always want to add their own flair to something. And, you know, you have to kind of just be open to those ideas to see what comes of it. And if it if it feels right in the song, then it is right. If it if it doesn't, then you cut it, you know, but I think it's so important to just be open minded to experimentation in the writing stage and in the production stage as well. Yeah, it is. Um, I, I'm not always the best exponent of that because I'm old now and uh, I am a grumpy old man. <laughs> the pro- I think, you know, certainly with writing, because I've been doing it so, so long, not that I, of course, that I have all the answers, but when if someone who is in their 20s wants to try something that I know I probably would have wanted to try when I was 20, but I know it's not going to, I know (laughs) 99% sure you could never be sure of anything, but I'm pretty sure (laughs) it's not going to work. I'll probably just be too grumpy and shut and shut them down or not shut them down, (laughs) but I'll try, I'll do my best to convince them not to, not to spend the 20 minutes trying to do something that's not going to (laughs) work. (laughs) at the end of the day but yes in an ideal world if i was an enlightened being i would yes i would encourage that practice (laughs) i love that that's great yeah hey you're right though it's like you've got that experience so you've you've tried it you've been there you've done it you know if it if it hasn't worked in the past what makes you think it's going to work again right yeah yeah it's that it's that yeah that sort of thing i'm sounding i'm probably (laughs) sounding like a dick now but you know that's uh, full disclosure no but you know i but i think that that it, again, comes back back to that idea of patterns. So it's like you found the patterns of things that work, and you found the patterns of things that don't. So if you if you have that experience and that knowledge, then you know what the outcome is going to look like. Yeah, you know, probably know better. I just found as as we all do, we all get reached a stage in life where we've become we can recognize the we can we can recognize when something isn't right earlier on in the process and something that I used to, you know, scratch my beard about for three months, not trying to, not quite understanding why a chorus wasn't working. I can, you know, once you do lots of them, you can spot it early days and then it saves you a lot of time and effort. And then of course, I'm always going to become a cropper where I think I know something. And then someone said something, and we've we've pursued it, and they've been right. So there's always going to be an exception. But yeah, it's nice. It's a nice place to get to. I don't know how old you are, Mike, but we, we when you get to a place where you you recognise the patterns, like you say, and um, and you and you can spot them earlier than usual, or earlier than you could in your twenties or thirties. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that uh, you know, every now and then you will get the people who have that. They're gonna they're gonna go for that thing that you feel in your gut isn't going to work, and sometimes they'll surprise you. And you know, like you said, you you, you get those moments where sometimes they are right, but 
it's another learning experience. And, and, and you learn from that and you realize, okay, well, if we're going to go this way, maybe it worked because of X, you know, like you, you figure out why that worked. And now that's another tool in the back pocket, ready to go whenever someone else wants to bring up something like that. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 I know that you, you also do a lot of like composition and cinematic stuff as well. And I was wondering how the writing process differs when you're working on something like that versus writing for a specific artist. I think uh, the process is the same. It's just finding something, a little starting point, a melody that you, that you like. And I, uh, a little starting point that you like. So I'd, I'd say it's, it's very similar. What I do tend to do now is that I won't labor over an idea for too long. It'll, it'll be, a, I'll get it down in, in 30 seconds and then I'll leave it. I, I think I just with whatever idea I come up with, I, try and regain my perspective on it because as soon as you're as soon as you're you've started um shaping that idea you're slowly losing perspective i always think the, the best tool a producer could have in his toolkit is one of those devices they have in men in black where they wipe everyone's memories <laughs> and you can wipe your own memory of the idea you've just had and then just listen to it with fresh ears <laughs> and uh and that's what i'm trying to do I'll, I'll just you know i'll always have a few different projects going i'll have five or six pro tool sessions on the go and i'll just flip between them all trying to refresh or or trying to use a uh, an ear sorbet to neutralize my um the, my, my ears and to re-listen to the idea again to tell whether it's okay or whether it needs modifying. So often I'll go in and think, well, hang on a minute. No, that shouldn't go there. It should go there instead. So I'll, you know, I've got this nice little rhythm of oh, over the course of a week where I'll just revisit ideas that I've got bubbling away and I'll incrementally make little changes until I think I've got the overall shape of a song in terms of sonics and composition. And then I'll start doing the detail work that's very interesting and i totally agree with you i think that uh you know if we had those men in black devices but but even if, if it didn't completely erase your memory but if it would just made you think from like the audience perspective sometimes if you could just flip that that way as opposed to being the, the writer you know <laughs> yeah i think we can modify it to do that um mike yeah yeah we'll do yeah yeah. It's just yeah, and, no, and, that would be inconvenient if it completely wiped your memory. Why am I that, in a and, studio? And I also think that they need to. I also think that they need to make like a a mixing version of it as well that just tells you like, no, this is this sucks. You know, like, yeah, you know? this is not. You're the yeah, the drums are way too loud. I think we're running yeah. before we can walk. I think we need to just figure out how to wipe everyone's memory first. <laughs> we'll start modifying it. I mean, it'd be great if we could make a healthy lunch too. Yeah, Let, let's work on this. This is our, our joint plugin that we're going to make. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, you've, I mean, you've had a great career as a songwriter. And, you know, I know that there's a lot of people out there who are listening to this podcast who maybe don't want to go the route of being like a full-time engineer, but instead they want to be a professional songwriter and work with other artists, much like yourself. You know, what, what advice do you have for people who are trying to figure out how to start as a professional songwriter? Like what resources should they be looking into? What, wh where should they start? Okay. Well, I think a good way 
to do this is to buy a Tony Robbins book or or something of a similar ilk. I'm really doing his publicity tonight, aren't I? Um, is <laughs> buy one of his books, get into a, a, a get into the right state, meaning uh, a state where you feel inspired and excited. There are ways and means to do that. Um, and then to devise what Mr. Robbins was, would call a, a massive action plan map, which is, you know, what what is my goal? Who do I want to write with ideally? Um, how am I going to get there? And then how am I going to do that? And you make a few different stages, including the first step you're going to make. So I think whilst also um, finding out what your strong points are and listening to people's feedback, in music especially, you often get told what you want to hear. People don't want to tell you the truth and it's very hard to, to be really candid with someone and to tell them that a song isn't good or that they're barking up the wrong tree i think you need really robust reliable feedback coupled with a huge action plan that you are going to adhere to every day you're going to get yourself into the right state and you know, kind of get on a mission, get on a mission. You'd be tenacious and figure out what you want to do and you'll, and you'll work it out. Whether that means going to a gig, uh, mixing with people that know the band or artists you want to work with, or, or you know, that we could go on all night talking about way, best ways to get, get with a, get with a band or get to meet the right people. But, um, yeah, it starts with that. It starts with getting you know, getting a plan together, taking huge, massive action, and um, and listening to the feedback you're getting, and, and request people give you straight answers and not the the answers you want to hear. That's great advice, and it goes back to what you said, kind of maybe half hour ago where we were talking about just the the importance of having a broad circle of friends, people who you can trust, who will tell you straight up how it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, friends are good. I think non-music friends, my wife tells me when, I mean, I've stopped working on songs with Change of Direction or something. My wife's listened to a few seconds and usually been disparaging about something. And then I've I've changed my course of action. But yeah, to, to have a wide circle of friends, give try and get honest answers, but also honest answers from people in the industry that know what they, they're talking about two and um and just be persistent so many ways to get to artists now or to you know to to get through to people i think it's i think it's quite an exciting time yeah that, that's great advice great advice well julian i don't want to take up too much more of your day but uh we can we can start to wrap up here if people want to learn more about you and maybe follow you online what's the best way for them to do that that's a good question i i don't do much <laughs> instagram um I I'm on Facebook. I I haven't really really embraced the uh, social media thing, but it's um 
I, I think my my um, manager's website usually got the artists that I've just been working with on recently, um, and usually on Facebook. I, I don't do a business Facebook; just my general Facebook. I'll um, I'll have uh, you know if I if I've just finished a record, or I've had some success, then I'll always post about it. Other people seem to like to hear hear about it so um yes friend requests on facebook at the moment i think pretty old school awesome and lastly are there any cool projects that you're working on right now that you can talk about most interesting one probably um the singer of nothing but thieves connor mason i'm doing with batting some ideas back and forth with nothing but thieves uh and I think I've forgotten the artist's name, Eli Wood. Is it Eli Wood? I'm just checking his uh, name out now. I've got coming out. It's great, really great singer. Um, you know, often my manager will just send me different artists um, that may be interested in uh, working with me. Um, so he, yeah, he he was really good. Uh, and uh, about yeah, and also a band called. Um, Sour, which is kind of my own project with um, a pal of mine called Ted Griggs. And Ted is a super talented guy. Um, that's on just on Spotify recently. Um, so, yeah, Sour and look out for anything, nothing but thieves or nothing but thieves related um, coming to a store near you soon. Amazing. I'll have to check all of that out. Well, Julian, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to do this podcast. There was so much awesome stuff. Uh, you know, I think anyone who's thinking of becoming a songwriter, they've got a lot to unpack from this episode. So I really appreciate all the amazing advice. Hey, that's uh, it's a real pleasure. It's really good talking to you, Mike. So that was my interview with Julian Emery, and that was a great episode. I love all of the advice that he gave us all about songwriting and getting into it and really just finding your own patterns that allow you to succeed and, you know, all of the stuff that he was getting into about uh, Tony Robbins and all that. Like, it definitely shows that he has a persistence to him that has allowed him to keep moving forward, keep making those contacts, expanding his network, and it's definitely paid off. He's worked with some amazing artists, and I think that if you follow Follow a lot of the advice that he gave here today, you'll see a lot of success with your own music as well. So, Julian, if you're listening to this, thank you so much for being on here. Really had a great time and would love to have you back at some point. Now, if this is your first time listening to the podcast and hearing about Master Your Mix, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That's where I help musicians create professional recordings from their home studios so that you can use these songs to showcase your talents in the best way possible and to use these recordings to help grow your career as well. So, Visit MasterYourMix.com, and when you get to the website, I'm currently offering a free guide to using EQ and compression in your mixes. That's called the Ultimate Mixing Blueprint. So when you get to the website, you're going to see a link pop up that will ask you for your email, and you can download that for free. And that's going to just really point you in the right direction as far as cleaning up your tracks, knowing when to boost and cut things with EQ, what kind of compression settings to use, all so that you can make your mixes sound nice and clear right away and not have to guess at what you're doing or not have to rely on presets that aren't going to help you. So once again, visit MasterYourMix.com and that's where you can sign up for that. So with that said, that is today's episode. Guys, thank you so much for joining me here today. I had a lot of fun. It's great to be back and looking forward to putting out more episodes for you guys soon. All right, we'll talk soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. 
please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.